This is Michael Gebert. The episode you're about to hear is about Douglas Fairbanks, and there's something at Nitrateville I want to make sure you know about. Kino Lorber will be releasing a set of two early Douglas Fairbanks films, The Half-Breed and The Good Bad Man, on Blu-ray and DVD, and Nitrateville will be giving away three copies of this release. So after you listen to the podcast, be sure to visit nitrateville.com, find the giveaway in the silent news section, register if you aren't already, and post your favorite Douglas Fairbanks film. That makes it more interesting than if everybody just posts their name. Then come back to the site on Friday, May 4th, and we'll announce the winners. Now enjoy the show. The the robber with the gun actually said, gee, you're Fairbanks, aren't you? And he said, yes. Um, and they said, where's Mary? And he said, upstairs sleeping, please don't wake her up. I'll go find some money for you. But it actually hurt his public reputation that he didn't fight off the 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 three men with the guns and and go swinging and knock them out out of the silver shadows and into the clig lights of movie land comes nitrateville radio This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Robin Hood, D'Artagnan, Zorro, The Thief of Baghdad. Douglas Fairbanks was the original action star and someone who helped define 20th century American masculinity. I'll talk with Tracy Gossel, author of The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks. And listen, you nut, don't mollycoddle and flirt with fate and let an episode vanish when the clouds roll by. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And leave us a rating or a review at iTunes if you have a chance. Thanks. He was short, round-faced, part Jewish, and apparently illegitimate. And by the time he was 35, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. was the epitome of vigorous, hale and hearty American masculinity, the idol of boys everywhere, and with his wife Mary Pickford and best friend Charlie Chaplin, the most famous people who had ever lived. Every action hero since, Errol Flynn to Jackie Chan, James Bond to Indiana Jones, traces his DNA back to the movies Doug Fairbanks made. And his imprint on society is seen in everything from self-help culture to the popularity of tanning. It's a great story of self-invention and the newly discovered power of global celebrity through the movies. So it's surprising that it took until Tracy Gossel's 2015 biography, The First King of Hollywood, for a modern scholarly telling of the tale. The book came out in paperback at the start of 2018, and two previously little-seen Fairbanks films, The Half-Breed and The Good Bad Man, are coming out May 1st from Kino Lorber. So it seemed a good time to talk to Tracy Gossel, 
a historian and founder of LA's Film Preservation Society, to try to answer the question, who was Douglas Fairbanks? We think of him as someone who's sort of the self-invented American, but I mean, he really was that. I mean, his his actual background. His father was a bigamist, so therefore he was he was. His father was a trigamist. Trigamist. In, yes, in the end, he had three families. The third the third one was after Doug, but yeah, he he got around H. Charles Holman. Yeah, so he's he's basically illegitimate. Although his, he and his mother would not have known that at the time, I guess. Is it- well, uh, yeah, his mother might have known. Um, it's unclear whether she knew that his uh, uh, first marriage did not end in a proper divorce. Uh, she might have suspected because he married her twice, uh, about two weeks apart, okay. when. They- <laughs> when they were traveling west to uh, to go to Colorado, um, but you know, but by, by the time Doug was born, the you know, mom and dad had the illusion of being properly married, and um, so I, he certainly knew that uh, dad had disappeared when he was five, and he also uh, knew and unfortunately was very ashamed of the fact that his father was Jewish, which is not an abnormal um, thing in the 1890s, 1900s. That was considered to be pretty low uh, on the social scale. I think the only thing that was worse was to be a person of color. Um, and, you know, now we look at it and say, oh, my goodness, for heaven's sakes, that's a silly thing to to carry shame about. It's interesting because he also becomes one of the screen personalities that you just don't think about that fact, like Paul Newman or Harrison Ford, that they're yeah. you know, of part Jewish oh. ancestry, but they don't have any sort of persona of that as other actors Exactly, do. versus, say, a John Garfield. But also, he, he did more than that. He turned himself into an uber-wasp. Uh, he, he sort of became the personification of uh, everything that was Rooseveltian. And he he just kept it hidden versus Chaplin, who it turns out wasn't Jewish, but people often thought he was, um, had the took the stance of saying, I I do not have that honor and um which was a far more modern and more mature stance. Doug just uh, hid it and um confessed it with what his son described as you know, great shame and angst to each of his wives in turn, uh, both of whom, I speak of the first two wives, I don't know how the third one um, dealt with it, both of whom thought it was unnecessary uh, angst and thought it was ridiculous, that it, it didn't matter what his background was and that, that uh, having a Jewish Heritage was nothing to be ashamed of. You know, you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt there, and mm-hmm. I never really thought about that directly, but I mean, he really is the epitome of Roosevelt's conception of the the active Westerner who, you know, who's going yeah. to make himself and, you know, work in the outdoors and show physical strength and courage and, and all yeah, those the, things. The, the strenuous life. Roosevelt gave a very famous speech about the strenuous life. And Fairbanks um, personified that in his uh, public and, in fact, his private persona. Um, I think, I can't remember which great scholar wrote that, you know, he 
he was the guy who who thought he didn't um you know modern civilization with the pesky indoor plumbing and stuff was just not necessary to a manly man and at the turn of the century there was a great deal of anxiety and kind of collective um worry in Americans that we were getting soft that the you know, the country had gotten modern and we'd get around now in these automobiles instead of walking and riding our horses and and the country has become urban and we've lost our our great manly physical roots which is why there was a growth of um organizations like the YMCA, Young Man's Christian Association, get out there and get in a gymnasium and become fit. And uh, Doug was really uh, embraced that Rooseveltian ethic, and um, not just in his his uh, screen persona, but in his private life. He was out there on the horse. He was he emulated Roosevelt all the way through to doing the big game hunting. Uh, in the early 30s uh, that Roosevelt did after he left uh, his second term of presidency. He went to Africa and had very famously uh, (laughs) slaughtered a whole bunch of animals um, at a time when that was considered glamorous and heroic. Uh, He really tried to emulate Teddy in every way and and paid money to... um, uh, keep the term mollycoddle as a title of a film to an author who uh, you said, hey, you know, this is my copyright. I, I wrote a story for the Saturday Evening Post titled The Molly Coddle. had nothing to do with Doug's film. The film was already several months into production, and he just paid him thousands of dollars and listed him as a co-author rather than lose the title um, because it meant so much to him to have that Roosevelt term uh, be the Molly Coddle, and uh, in some of his films, his characters is even named Teddy. Uh, and these are films where he he was the producer and he had control over it. So, yeah, he worshipped Teddy and everything about him, and even got to meet him uh, once in 1909 when a gentleman from Mississippi was playing in Washington D.C. Roosevelt came to see it, and the cast, you know, went through a receiving line later. And he had uh, a conversation with Roosevelt that that dazzled him because Roosevelt, you may or may not know, had a prodigious photographic memory. And he he knew stuff about um, Fairbanks' prior history and theatrical history and his family. Doug said that even he had forgotten. Which for an actor with pretty high self-regard must have been a high point of his life. Yeah, it really was. And uh, it didn't hurt that his father-in-law loathed Teddy Roosevelt as a, <laughs> a good robber baron would. Uh, he he said he, he likes Roosevelt about as much as the kitten likes the ocean. But uh, I'm for him all the way. And he really was. He he was crazy about Teddy. And, and he really, he wasn't... Um, he, he wasn't a cardboard cowboy. I mean, Fairbanks really did ride and rope and and uh, you know climb and and had the physical chops to back it up and would be out there camping in the wilderness, um, occasionally you know encountering a, some poor straggler who was out there in the desert dying. I didn't write any of those accounts in my book because you you never know whether. Uh, such things are, you know, the dream of a publicity agent. But they tended to come 
and not be promoted and be major news stories. They just tended to be local regional stories that Doug was out in in the woods and brought in some poor guy uh, who was lost or or starving or dying of uh, thirst or something. Somebody else at the studio is paying guys to go get lost in the desert. Yeah, in the woods, probably. But um, uh, there were a whole bunch of minor Fairbanks, uh, Fairbanksian heroics, just stupid little things like, um, you know, a kid would wander off in the zoo and, and get into the wrong pit, and Doug would quickly leap over and, and, and grab the kid. Um, none of which I, again, reproduced in the book because you're never quite sure. The only one I told was before he was really famous, um, when he was in Great Britain at um, the races. Uh, I can't remember what what famous Great Britain uh, races there are. And there were um, some bookies who were welching out on, on the uh, suckers who were paying them the money. And Fairbanks, uh, who was, again, then so little known that the, the, the local account in Great Britain said, you know, Douglas Fairbanks, an actor, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, ch- chased um, down the, the uh, cheating bookie and, you know, made him cough up the money, basically perform, performed a little local act of impulsive heroics. And the other um, sort of heroic thing that, that he did that was almost stupidly heroic that um, is verified enough that I, I talked about it in the book was when somebody was trying to um, break into Pickfair, a, a group of men with guns, and the, uh, the guard on the estate, a guy by the name of Tony, who himself was armed, started to exchange shots with these guys. And when bullets were authentically flying, and Fairbanks came out the window uh, with a revolver. I mean, he he um, uh, engaged in the, the gunfight, and they, they winged one of the perpetrators. There was a blood trail, uh, but they got away. They had a getaway car. And uh, I don't know whether it's a really wise thing to do to... To jump out of a window with with a gun in your hand and join the fray, uh, but it's well documented that Fairbanks did do it at that instance. So I did write about that later in his career. He and Mary were at the Santa Monica Beach House, and this was during the height of the Depression. And Mary is sleeping upstairs, and Doug is coming down to you know check the locks, and um, uh, some young men come in masked with guns desperate they're they're poor and they're looking to rob the place and um the light turns on and suddenly they see the person in front of them is douglas fairbanks and the the robber with the gun actually said gee you're fairbanks aren't you and he said yes um and they said where's mary he said upstairs sleeping please don't wake her up i'll go find some money for you and then just go away quietly don't don't wake her up and he did he rousted up a hundred bucks and and they went away and and um he saved tens of thousands of dollars in jewelry but it actually hurt his public reputation that he didn't fight off the the the, the three men with the guns and, and go swinging and knock them out. And it, it's, it's sad to say, you know, people were writing in and were very disappointed and they'd rather not have heard 
heard the story then to hear that uh, <laughs> their hero just talked the men out of doing anything. But I, I think that was actually really prudent. Yeah, it out <laughs> seems like a good <laughs> idea to me. But uh... He cued on to the fact that um, uh, they were excited to think that Mary Pickford was sleeping upstairs. And never forget, while he is you know, really the top male star, short of uh, Chaplin as a comedian who is the top um, male star, Mary Pickford's star is even a touch brighter than his. I mean, she is truly the most famous person in the world. Um, and so uh, the combination of the two of them really forms the supernova. Well, let's talk about, I mean, you've everything you've just talked about really hints at what his persona was, mm -hmm. that sort of devil-may-care, uh, strapping, muscular American, uh, full of hijinks. And I guess that kind of comes out of his stage career, which I kind of knew he had one, but didn't realize that he really was quite successful. He was an up-and-coming star on oh, the stage, yeah. had a lot of setbacks along the way because shows open and they don't do as well as everybody imagined they would. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I mean, a, a pretty big name, bound to end up in the movies at some point, um, and really seemed... There was there was just a natural star quality to him that became apparent very early on. Let's, let's talk about it. How he how he went from stage to screen. Well, let me first uh, kind of tweak what you said. Until 1915, to be on the stage and then bound to end up in movies eventually means you're a flop as a stage <laughs> actor. Uh, the unsuccessful stage people had to go into the the moving pictures. In 1915, everything torques. It changes. Birth of a Nation uh, is a tremendous success. And Harry Aiken says, okay, now I'm going to recruit Broadway stars to, uh, to be in the movies. Now, how smart a move this is, it turned out to be not very smart a move. Um, the only real success of that recruitment was Doug Fairbanks. Now, the myth that most people believe because... Anita Luce had fostered it, and then um, the kind of lazy historians cut and paste from the last guy's work uh, is that Doug was sort of an also-ran that, um, oh, by the way, we're hiring Doug Fairbanks, uh, but, oh, we've got all these really great stars, and then Doug was the unexpected hit. In fact, they, um, they were banking on him. Uh, even more than they were banking on most of the people they hired. They paid him more. They made his film um, the, be the, the premier film of the Triangle Corporation's first uh, huge uh, presentation. If you look in the financial records of Harry Aiken and the Triangle Corporation, the, the story is quite different from the way it had been crafted by people like Anita Luce. I mean, Anita Luce can take any narrative and, like a good screenwriter, turn it into a cool story. Um, but I found that the truth was equally interesting. Uh, he was a, a big success on stage. And yes, they would go back and forth, and there would be times when he would be in vaudeville. There were five different... Um, times when he he was on the vaudeville route, but so was Ethel Barrymore. You know, they were it was sort of a, a standard thing. Um, 
in the theater at that time for major stars to do vaudeville runs. And he is, he is a major name, a major star, and has, um, by 1915, indeed formed that personality of um, kind of an action star on the stage, which hadn't really existed up until then. He was doing stuff on the stage that um, night in, night out, that most performers didn't do. And you can, he was, you can see how, golly, if movies hadn't come along when they did, you know, what would they, there wouldn't have been a, a proscenium uh, large enough to hold Douglas Fairbanks's uh, physical skills. He was, he was really pretty remarkable. Um, and the man met the correct medium when he got into film. If you've ever seen a good copy of The Lamb, and almost nobody has, we are going to get it restored, and we can talk later about um, Film Preservation Society uh, that that I founded. We've um, restored a number of formerly lost Fairbanks films, and some of them are coming out soon on DVD and Blu-ray. But if you ever see a good copy of The Lamb, what you're really seeing is his uh, Broadway performance in um, the new Henrietta as a shy, stuttering fellow who then in the second half of the story you know, finds his heroic self. And that is the template for, for one set of Fairbanks films going forward. You know, Doug had a few kind of set pieces that you would, you would vary. Um, uh, but the, the, Shy, weak person becoming the the strong, heroic person was one of those uh, storylines that that audiences love to see him in, and that that originated on the stage. Now you talk about Anita Luce. I was going to ask about that. There's certainly by a certain point he's become enough of a star that he has this entourage around him. There's the very funny story you tell of a the hotel owner who can never yeah. seem to, to get him. You know, get Fairbanks alone. Oh, yeah. Frank he, Case, yeah, yeah. the Algonquin. Yeah. And so, yeah, tell, tell what he did. Well, Frank Case got awfully tired of uh, Doug, who was like a train engine being followed around by a whole bunch of empty uh, cargo containers. It, <laughs> it was it, wherever he went, you know, there was Doug and this train of people behind him. And Frank hadn't seen Doug in a while. They were very dear friends. Going back to, again, Doug's stage career in New York. Um, and so Doug would meet with them, and there would be all the goons sitting around. Um, and so Frank invited him to come over uh, to his place and, and have a chat. And he arranged to have every bellhop and uh, 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 hotel staffer just sit in a circle around them when when uh, he and Doug were, were going to talk. And Doug took the hint and left his... Uh, his entourage down in the lobby going forward. But that model of star followed by um, uh, you, you entourage, a group yeah. of people. Assorted hangers um, on. Yeah, that I think it was Mark Wahlberg produced a TV series yeah. that, that told that story in the 90s or the 2000s. He, Fairbanks was sort of the first at that. And um, he he had people who were useful to him, writers and publicity men and otherwise he just had you know cheerful goons who amused him um and they were the sort of people who were absolutely happy to 
to make their lives subservient to this really interesting, vital person and, and follow him around. But he expected anybody in his employ to kind of assume that. And so Ed, Edward Knobloch, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the um, the author of Kismet and the fellow who worked with him on, for example, The Three Musketeers, uh, found it rather odd that Doug just expected him to, you know, 24 hours a day, come hang with me uh, when you're in his employ. Uh, Knobloch's in his 40s. He's an autonomous, independent, successful playwright. He he doesn't want to tag around behind a, a star, even somebody as engaging and charismatic as Fairbanks. He's a grown-up. But there were plenty of people who did, and I, the world today is like that. I can promise you, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio walks around with <laughs> equal number of goons around him well i Uh, I think they have a specific nickname but it is an entourage uh it's it's a little dirtier so yes (laughs) yes. Uh, uh, if i were in um uh what's that tv show the good place i would call them star frickers yeah (laughs) Uh, yes (laughs) those two but they you know they serve a function uh they they're like court jesters they amuse their their lord and master, and they get the the secondhand glow uh, from him. And uh, you know, some of the people Fairbanks had following were authentically useful to him. His his publicity guy, his um, uh, the the Kenneth Davenport, who was his right you know ghost writer. Um, these were people who really served a function within the organization, and others were just you know hangers on, and hangers that's on. okay. <laughs> I wish yeah. I had an entourage. It would be really cool. Yeah. And Doug never had to carry money. You know, somebody right. always yeah, carried money he's, for Just he's like, like royalty. Or like, yeah, like a Kennedy. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, let's talk about some of the ones who are more substantial members of his uh, his company. Uh, mm-hmm. Anita Luce and her husband, John Emerson. What was yes. their role for him, really? Well, then here's an interesting story. Um, they first, I'll tell you the story as Anita Luce told it, and that's what most people believe. Um, oh golly, Doug comes, uh, makes the lamb. Griffith isn't very impressed, wants to send him over to Keystone. But oh, John Emerson found these clever, clever scripts that I Anita Luce wrote. Um, suggests to D.W. Griffith that maybe young Doug Fairbanks could be in them. Griffith says, I just, you know, buy them because I like to read the subtitles and they make me laugh. Well, go ahead, do what you want. I don't care what you do with Fairbanks. Um, They film his picture in the papers. Everybody thinks it's a dud. Uh, Roxy at the the Sam Rothenfall. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I just, a world of Nitrateville people are all cringing at my pronunciation. Well, actually, in Um, just a couple of episodes back, I was schooled on that. So (laughs) So anyway, Sam is is at the Roxy and he, he... his movie doesn't come through, so he puts on his picture in the papers, and the house rocks with laughter, and Doug is, is launched. Totally, totally fabricated, totally false story. Here's the way it really works. Fairbanks comes to Triangle. His very first film, The Lamb, Anita Lewis is paid to write the subtitles. His second film, Double Trouble, ditto. Anita Lewis writes the subtitles. The third film, his picture in the papers, Anita Luce writes the entire script. Um, the first film, 
the lamb is a smash. From the moment it he hits the screen, it is clear that this guy was meant to be on camera. The camera loves him. He's charismatic. The audience loves him. Um, and Triangle signs him, Aiken at that point, from the first film, signs him to a long-term contract. Uh, the third film, which is the one that was based on Anita Luce's script, in fact, is absolutely charming. It's the first one that really is a characteristically Fairbanksian film. Uh, his picture in the papers has got is just the model for all those Luce Emerson Fairbanks screwball comedies. So Fairbanks continues at Triangle and alternates making films with Luce and Emerson, with Christy Cabanet, and with Alan Dwan, uh, for the most part. So he, Luce is not writing all of his uh, Triangle films. She's not making um, him a success. She she totally wipes, for example, extremely talented director Alan Dwan out of the story. So Fairbanks forms his own company, beginning of 1917. He's been a year and a half at Triangle. He's made 13 films. Now it's the Douglas Fairbanks Film um, Corporation and company, and he brings on Luce and Emerson as partial stockholders. He He's really very generous. Uh, he also brings on his cameraman, Victor Fleming, as a stockholder. Now, Victor Fleming, you know from Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz and his uh, prestigious later career in uh, talkies, and Fleming uh, gets his first chance as a director with Fairbanks later on. But he, he forms his own company, and Luce and Emerson write uh, the first film, and um, they don't write the second, uh, oh, excuse me, they do write the second um, in terms of the screenplay and direct. Uh, but by the fourth or fifth film, Doug wants to make a Western, and he wants to make a Western based on... Um, a short story that he reads in a book, uh, in a um, magazine, and he leases a big ranch in Montana and hires a whole bunch of expert uh, rodeo riders and bulldoggers for the film. And Luce and Emerson don't want to make a Western. They just they don't think it'll work. They're, in, in fact, it probably doesn't work very well for their, their style. So they sort of stage a sit-down strike and suddenly Doug is without a director and he's got an expensive property that's leased for a set amount of time. So um, uh, he, with the little bit of aid of uh, Mrs. Fairbanks, Beth Sully, uh, he has an assistant director by the name of Joseph Hennebury uh, come in and take over the film. And you look at the records, poor Joe Hennebury, he's on the train ride out to Montana trying to write a script, trying to figure out a story on the train. And you just see these notes. They're all at the Herrick. Um, and they get out there and they start filming without a full script. And he's working on the script at night and filming in the day. They finish filming, and Hanbury takes the film out to New York, where Anita Luce and John Emerson are supposed to meet him and screen the footage, and write the intertitles, because there's nothing more enchanting than an Anita Luce intertitle. Anita Luce and John Emerson are not to be found. They just they go dark, 
and these guys are stuck. They've got a release date. So poor Joe Hanabury writes the titles himself. Now, Hanabury's background had been with D.W. Griffith, so he's writing titles for the man from Painted Post that sound like they belong in Intolerance at the yeah. Birth of a Nation. <laughs> uh, remember, he played Lincoln in The Birth of a Nation. I mean, sure. these very stilted Griffithian titles. And the film goes out, and it's a huge hit. Um, but Fairbanks is not happy uh, that Luce and Emerson kind of pulled the stunt. Uh, it was a diva uh, stunt. They make their next film with him, but um, he, you know, things are getting cold and chilly, and he brings on Alan Dwan as an alternate director, and Luce and Emerson sign out of the game. They get their residual profits based on percentage on all the films to date, including Man from Painted Post, where they didn't help one bit, and they're gone. They say nothing but polite things. Um, while Doug is alive, then Doug dies in 39, and the needle loose starts reshaping history and in the 70s. Got, she's got 40 years to go. Yeah, she outlives him, and she's charming, and everybody loves to quote her. So she, she starts painting the story that uh, Fairbanks got too big for his britches, and he was jealous that I was the little girl behind his success and all the publicity, and he couldn't take it. Well, the truth is, is that he was the one who actively promoted um, Luce and Emerson and Fleming as the trio behind his success. He got them a lot of press, um, a lot of photo shoots as being this wonderful team who um, were behind the scenes writing and, and filming this incredibly clever stuff. So uh, the idea that he was jealous that she was getting credit. Now, Doug was a jealous person, but uh, on romantic uh, issues, not, uh, not credit. He was phenomenally generous about sharing credit. Uh, and so she reshaped the story to make herself the heroine, uh, to totally shoot John Emerson out of the shoot. She, by then, she's you know, divorced from him and refers to him only as a pimp. Um, but she also does Fairbanks a disservice along the way. Yeah, he seems to have really been kind of like the CEO of Douglas Fairbanks Incorporated. You know, he, he was. He was. Yeah. It's this whole org. You get a sense of this whole organization behind him in a way that you don't say with Chaplin, who you know is very yeah. much the artiste. Yes, Doug had had the vision, and but he also had brothers who were smart. So he had COOs who um, dealt with the nitty gritty, the granular details, but had his interests at heart. And he was truly the visionary CEO uh, in terms of how the organization ran and was structured. Um, and you're right, Chaplin, um, Chaplin had his brother, Sid, who, who served the same function for him. Uh, I think maybe the, the more interesting parallel is um, D.W. Griffith, who was a hopeless business person incredibly bad and um yet was supposedly ceo of his organization and if there was a financial decision he was going to make it was guaranteed he'd make the wrong one right right 
Make the, the noblest sounding one that would be disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was wrong. And his yeah. brother was a nitwit, too. Yeah. Uh, both Doug and uh, Chaplin were so lucky in in their brothers. Well, you've mentioned the other one that I was going to bring up uh, several times here, which is Alan Dwan. And there's a, uh, mm-hmm. a line that you quote uh, Scott Iman where he says, what Dwan brought to Fairbanks was the idea that his stunts should not demonstrate the extreme of what the star was capable of, but that they should look unforced. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a huge key to Fairbanks' charm was that not only that he could do these strenuous things, but he did them with such such lightness. You know, this. Oh yeah, he looked like a fairy floating across a masculine fairy. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Duan was an engineer, and so he would cut the steps to certain heights. He would make the tables a certain height so that Doug would jump across it, and Doug could jump across a higher table. Absolutely. But it would look like he was trying, and instead, it's like he's this supernatural creature who just not only goes over the table, he dances over it. It's like Nureyev in a psychedelic dream. Just you watch him in something like a modern musketeer, and it's it's the the sets and the things around him with which he interacts are as brilliantly engineered and structured as the things that as Doug himself is in in how he interacts with them. And uh, Dwan was a really mature, intelligent director. Um, his, I won't say mise-en-scene, I think that's pretentious, but his his framing of the, the shots uh, is so intelligent and... Um, timeless in a sense, whereas somebody like um, John Emerson, boy, if John Emerson didn't have a needle loose, he, he'd be in trouble because he's pretty, pretty ordinary uh, as a director. He's, he's Christy Cabanet caliber. Um, <laughs> well, it's interesting you, know. you mention some of the people who Fairbanks one way or another mentored. And mm-hmm. it's funny that Eric von Stroheim turns up, who is very much not the example of this. But yeah. otherwise, it's Dwan, it's Raoul Walsh, mm-hmm. Howard Hawks, and William Wellman turn up. And I mean, that's yep. that's pretty much the Mount Rushmore of invisible craftsmanship of just and Victor. Don't forget and Victor, Victor Fleming. Fleming also, who yeah. you know I think is a bit unknown because of his sound work, but you know, what I've seen of his silent work, I mean, he's, he's one of the best American directors at that time. And, and likewise in that vein of sort of, you know, well-crafted manly films that don't have any nonsense to them that just get the job done extremely mm-hmm. well. Um, and so clearly, you know, he, he had a good eye for talent that was uh, compatible with his own talent. Yes, he did, um, and he he worked cooperatively and collaboratively with others uh, very well. And um, as I said, was always generous about sharing credit. But he also was really good about moving people up um, the the chain. I mean, he could have kept Victor Fleming as a cameraman forever. He was a great cameraman, but he he gave him the opportunity to direct. Ted Reed had been, uh, I think, a script guy for him, and he he gave him the opportunity to direct The Nut. I think he did a wonderful job, but I guess Ted wasn't that interested in being a, a director. Um, he let people advance 
sort of under his protective arm, and then he also let them go. If um, they moved up and beyond uh, and had better opportunities, uh, he you know, he would let the birds fly the nest and then kind of grow the next person. But yeah, uh, William Wellman, you know, he brought him in as he had been a war hero. And so Doug was, had known him before the war from uh, hockey and uh, brought him in to just come to Hollywood. You know, we'll, we'll give you work and put him in as an actor. And Wellman, Wellman sure did not want to be an actor, but he, he saw something uh, attractive in being a director and essentially, he owes his entire uh, career to the initial opportunity that Fairbanks gave him. Doug shaped so many things that um, exist today that you know wouldn't have ex- it's like the butterfly effect. You know, it wouldn't have existed if he hadn't been born. Um, even you know, I, I start the book off trying to give examples so that people who are not Nitrateville fans or the, the Cognoscenti can can get into it. But um, uh, Batman and Superman were both based on him. Uh, Technicolor exists. The company survived because he intervened and, and gave it um, the Black Pirate. Uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, okay, it probably would have been founded anyway had he never been born. But... Um, I don't think it would have been the same organization. Uh, the film school at uh, USC, that was his doing. The idea that, that um, the craftsmanship of film, not the theory, God, I loathe film theory. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the business of how to figure out how to make a lens do what you want it to do and, uh, and how, to, how to structure um, editing and how to uh, develop film... All of that, he felt, should be taught, and in fact, it is now taught, but he was the one who brought it to uh, a university level, an academic level. Things that we don't normally think of when we think of a movie star, uh, particularly one who's all muscle and teeth right. and charm. <laughs> uh, you know, we, if, um, uh, who was, was it Milton Sills? Milton Sills was a, you know, highly educated, uh, erudite fellow. And that, I expect him to form a university program. Right. Because he's <laughs> Milton Sills. Uh, I just don't expect this guy who's bouncing around and hardly ever reads a book. And then he didn't. I mean, this is not a guy who could sit down and be patient and, and even read a script for very long. Uh, but, uh, you know, his his reach is really far greater than most people today realize. Another big character in his life, mm-hmm. obviously, is Mary Pickford. And yeah. it's really striking. Uh, you know, they carry on an affair for a couple of years, and it all sort of comes to a head while he's hugely important raising money for the war effort, for war bonds. You know, yes, he, the two of them together on the, the 1918 uh, war bond tour in April. 
Yeah, and so he's, you know, by day he's walking into Wall Street and getting everybody riled up and they're, you know, writing multi-figure checks on the spot and he's collecting millions of dollars. But at the mm-hmm. same time, the story of their affair, which has been kept out of the press at that point, is finally kind of leaking yep. out. And it's very dra- dramatic in the book. It'd make a good movie by someone other than Douglas Fairbanks about how yes. his world is kind of threatened to come crashing down at that point. And it's oh, a yeah. sort of thing. This is very early in stardom. They, they could easily have seen their careers destroyed. Oh, by their... and matter of fact, there was a recent example. Francis X. Bushman's career tanked um, when his affair with Beverly Bain came out. Um, you know, it really was possible. Right now, we look back in retrospect and go, oh, of course not. That that scandal wouldn't ruin them. That would make them more interesting. Well, not in 1918. In 1918, uh, folks were pretty judgmental, and that really could, could have ruined both of them, particularly uh, because their images were based on wholesomeness. So you would add a layer of hypocrisy. I mean, I think if Theta Barra were caught having an affair, everybody <laughs> would say, ooh, well, that's what you get. Right. Uh, Polinegri, yeah, it's like, well, of, yeah. course, of course she is. <laughs> yeah, so she's Polinegri. She's, she's German. She's exotic. Uh, she's, she's vamped our little Charlie Chaplin but, uh, or Rudolph Valentino. But, um, yes, it was a, a, a big moment in the lives and it didn't leak out. It came out all at once because, uh, Fairbanks's wife, Beth Sully goes to the press and names names and says, you know, he's in love with another woman and few, very few brave newspapers named Mary Pickford, the vast majority just said another woman, and then went to Mary Pickford for a quote. So you <laughs> yeah. Could, yeah, you you were supposed to uh, connect the dots, and it wasn't very hard to do so. But in the end, it really didn't matter. I mean, it's they seem to have changed public opinion at once. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's things where people, you know, people say something, that there's that prosecutor in Nevada who was going to get them because she didn't actually established the residency she was supposed to get to have a divorce and everybody is saying you you keep your hands off our mary exactly let them be happy they're happy at last and it just stardom triumphed you know stardom absolutely stomped the morality of the era and invented a new one there were still some pastors who were uh speaking out against uh the divorce stars. And so for just very briefly, um, there was an attempt to, to stomp Doug and Mary in uh, March and April of, of 1920. Uh, and what I love is the pastors are saying, you should go see wholesome stars. We recommend Roscoe Arbuckle and, <laughs> and Wallace Reed. Yeah. And it's like, oh, could you have picked yeah, those fine films of William Desmond Taylor? Um, but the, the, the fact is, is that that was not, uh, the chip in the armor of, uh, the, you know, the, the morality kick did not, it just bounced off of them. Even when Mary's sister-in-law, Jack Pickford's wife, Olive Thomas dies of what is either an accidental or an intentional overdose, right. that doesn't get them. It's not until... Uh, the Arbuckle scandal, uh, and Wallace Reed's death, and the William Desmond Taylor murder, that suddenly 
the morality police come in and they've the, the public isn't saying leave him be. The public is saying, oh, that dreadful man, oh my gosh, you know, uh, you know that Hollywood, they're, they're all shooting up heroin and, and uh, influencing our children. So Doug and Mary at that point, even though they had just been through the divorce scandal, now stand at the opposite side. They represent all that is upright and moral about the Hollywood community trying to save its reputation against the Galawags and and pimps and drug dealers and uh, lascivious men, so they're uh, they're sort of representing uh, cleanness and goodness and oh my goodness we you know we live in Beverly Hills we're not near those folks in Hollywood we don't know anything about that um, kind of. Uh, Goodness, and they did it with an absolute straight face. So around the same time, I mean, this is there's really two obvious phases to his career. His his films in the teens are these kind of lightweight uh, romps that are built around his you know charismatic personality. And one right, thing, the I, modern student, yeah, the modern coat and tie. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I noticed, I mean, when I would program films in 16 millimeter back in the day. You know, superficially, mm-hmm. you'd think that like Buster Keaton films would have similarities of plot to the Fairbanks ones. But really, if you played them together, it was kind of to the detriment of the Fairbanks films, just because films in the 20s, I feel, were more were just more solidly constructed. And the Fairbanks mm-hmm. ones, a lot of their charm is the breeziness, but it makes them seem insubstantial if they get played next to something that's much better constructed. And then you depends on the year, because if you're talking a Keaton film, a Fairbanks coat and tie film is 1917 to 1919, right? Early 1920. Keaton in 17 is just co-starring with Arbuckle, and up through 19, Keaton is not making his own films until 2021, when um, Arbuckle moves to make uh, features. Now Keaton has his own unit and starts with things like One Week and and um, uh, the High. I sign, etc. So, in a sense, you're comparing apples and oranges. No, and the, I think I think the, that's true. It's it's really the difference between the time time periods. Yeah, they're different time periods, and the triangles are the the eighteen months of triangle. Triangle is doing things. Um, those films cost thirty five thousand uh, dollars per film on average to make, and uh, yes, they're nineteen. By the time Doug is making his coat and tie films in uh, 1917, 1918, uh, to early 1919 before UA, he's spending spending that just on sets. Uh, So you're even if you're looking at the early coat and tie films of Doug, you have to divide them into three parts. One is the uh, the cheaply made ones for Triangle, where he's figuring it out. He's building his formula, and they are uh, insubstantial, and yet you can see the seeds of greatness in them. Then you start in 1917. Uh, with In Again, Out Again, which is never seen. We're working with MoMA. We're going to get it restored and get it out there, but it will take a few more years. Um, uh, In Again, Out Again, Wild and Woolly, uh, Down to Earth. 
these films are, uh, think of Modern Musketeer. I mean, they, they, these are more substantially made and are, are more solid and I argue would stand up to anything. Um, you get to the early UA films uh, before he makes Zorro and um, you, you get a, a film like When the Clouds Roll By, oh my gosh, that's, that's brilliant um, and will stand up against Keaton, who, whom I adore. I, they, believe me, Buster and Doug are, you can draw parallels, but they're, they're in two different universes, and I, I would never judge one by the standards of sure. the other. Because uh, you do a disservice to each, um, and each is ah, so magnificent. Uh, but the you you get kind of the surreal quality of when the clouds roll by with that dream sequence that equals any surrealism in Keaton's films, such as The Balloonatic. I argue that they 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 stand up very well. So if you, as a film programmer, uh, didn't didn't know. Um, and how could you? Nobody had written the definitive Doug Fairbanks bio, um, <laughs> and how quickly that evolution ha- happened. Uh, you would look at a 1916 film and not realize that it would be worlds apart from 1917. And I'll give you an example. In 1915, Doug does a drunk scene in his second film, which is called Double Trouble. And he's funny and he's charming, but it's all pretty much staged. You know, single shots, Doug's walking around the frame being drunk. Compare that uh, to the drunk scene in In Again, Out Again. Doug, his girl has left him for a pacifist. He's, he goes to a pharmacy, which is where people could often get their booze those days. And he and the pharmacist get drunk and start throwing eggs at every cardboard cutout of advertising cutout of females throughout the, throughout the shop. And it is tremendously hilarious. Uh, but the difference between maybe a year and two months between those two scenes being shot uh, is you, you can just see the evolution of film uh, and storytelling in that time. And uh, so those two parallel scenes are sort of my way of, of showing how film itself and its practitioners improved in that short period. They were taking tremendous strides in a small period of time, sort of like comparing a 1909 biograph with a 1912 biograph. Right. And someday I'll get on with you, and uh, we can talk about the biograph project. (laughs) Film Film Preservation Society is restoring all 460 of them. Wow. And um, that's that's a a huge story in itself uh, that... We'll share for another day. So that's that's him in the teens, and mm-hmm. I mean it is it is an era of breezy, unpretentious films. People learning as they go, and that's a lot of its charm. I sure. think I think many of Pickford's films, in particular, you know, I like her better in the Poor Little Rich Girl, which gets right to the point in barely an hour than some of her more elaborate films from the 20s. Fairbanks is all elaborate films in the 20s. He really makes a transformation of the kind of things he's going to do that are, they're going to be these specials. So yeah, tell me tell me how that came about. Well, he, he migrates to the specials and they are elaborate, but it is a gradual migration. 
uh, Marco Zorro is a breezy and comedic film. Uh, half of the time he's in costume, half of the time he's the alter ego. Uh, and so that had a budget that was less than some of his coat and tie films. It's when he moves to the Three Musketeers that he says, I'm building sets. I mean, I'm, this is, this is you know, Alexander Dumas. We're going to do it right. This is going to be an epic. Huge success. Uh, he makes the nut um, afterwards because, uh, excuse me, before, between Three Musketeers and uh, Marcus Zorro, he makes the nut to sort of pad himself. You don't know if the costume film is going to be a success. Once he's made the Three Musketeers, and that's a big hit, now he's on the path. They are all going to be great, and each is going to be greater than the last. So Robin Hood is, in terms of his investment uh, in sets and energy and everything is a big step up from Three Musketeers. Robin Hood is the huge success of the 20s. There's only, only the big parade beats it. I mean, we forget today, even in Fairbanks' career, everybody talks about Thief of Baghdad. Um, Robin Hood was the blockbuster. So with the success of Robin Hood, he says, great, I'm going to dial it up again. And he dials it up even more with Thief of Baghdad. And it is a huge, tremendous investment and a gorgeous product and a fabulous film that endures today. But he hit his ceiling. It made more than Robin Hood, but it barely made a profit because of the cost. So he, he dials up each time, each time until the thief, he gets an even higher return. That investment pays off. With the Thief of Baghdad, the investment does not pay off. But he's in a trap now, right? Each film is once a year. It's a big deal. It's got to be bigger than the last. So he, he makes uh, Don Q, Son of Zorro, announces it's going to be even bigger and fancier than the Thief of Baghdad. In fact, it's not. He spends less on it, but it is way more profitable. Uh, the only film that's more profitable than Don Q is, in fact, Robin Hood, if you look at the, the net and the gross. Um, uh, and everybody forgets Don Q, Son of Zorro. And I think nobody would vote it a better film than the original Marco Zorro, which has his light, airy charm. Um, then he he is, goes to being an innovator and invests in uh, the Technicolor experiment with the Black Pirate. So um, both films, again, are, are tremendous successes, but he is on this path now. Everybody expects an extraordinarily special thing to come out of Fairbanks. And Mary fell into the same trap, but not with the same success. So Rosita and Dorothy Vernon of Haddon Hall are not, relatively speaking, as successful for her as her prior um, films, including the remake of Tess of the Storm Country. And so she very prudently reverts to Annie Rooney and Sparrow. She goes back to youth, uh, to being a little girl. And that is, that is successful, but still they have to be sort of a once-a-year thing. And for as a business model, um, it both works and fails. It, film stays in the theaters longer. You don't have to produce as many films because the thing is staying week in and week out. On the other hand, uh, if you're going to contract with theaters, you better have product 
and that's why the UA model struggled for years against the um, studio model, the Paramount. You know, you own the, the theater, you own the distributor, and you own the um, production company, where they would crank out an average of a film a week and just kept them coming and had very few great special films. Um, so not many of the Paramount films of the 20s are remembered forever uh, the way Thief of Baghdad or Robin Hood um, was was meant to be or thought to be. But it was a more successful financial model. And uh, UA didn't succeed very well through the 20s as a financial model, largely because of our, our dear friend Charlie Chaplin, who would vote down every attempt they would have to bring somebody else into the fold, like Warner's or MGM, so they could get more product. Uh, Chaplin would always kill it. And that was a great source of strife between Doug and Mary, because Doug and Charlie are best friends, but Mary and Doug are better business people. And it was a tough tightrope they walked. Well, and it's interesting. It seems like the change in his product over time also comes out of kind of growing ambition. It seems like through the end of the coat and tie comedies, he's kind of maybe aware that, that his stardom is wearing thin, that he's, that he's doing the same film over and over almost. Yeah. That, that's, that's a narrative um, that's often told. And I think in a critical standpoint, you are absolutely right. Uh, the critics at the time were starting to say, Oh, it was fun. We enjoyed it, but it was the same old Doug. Um, From a financial standpoint, that argument doesn't hold up, meaning the audience loved the same old Doug, who were tremendously successful. You look at the returns on the later Coat and Tie films. He could have kept on doing that through the 20s and, you know, been out Reginald Denny to Reginald Denny. He could have. But he was an innovative uh, person, and he did have ambitions, and so he took the very bold step of migrating to this new format, the swashbuckling format. But he took it in in a very staged, intelligent way. So, as I already described, Zorro costs no more, even less than right. um, uh, when the clouds roll by and the molly coddle. Uh, he he makes the nut after Zorro, which is a forgotten sensational uh, film also full of all kinds of, of uh, just surreal imagery and, and wild humor. Um, and then he goes to Three Musketeers. And he did it against the advice of every uh, pollster business person uh, <laughs> out there. So there you go. There's a really brave, innovative guy. It did, however, trap him and he, he never could get out and go back to making smaller films, you know, a Reaching for the Moon, uh, Mr. Robinson Crusoe, those things that would have been tremendous uh, successes for him 10 years earlier uh, don't work because what do people expect from Doug? They want Baghdad. Right. They want, you know, the, the, the castle and King John and, and color and, and, you know, he he can't top himself anymore, and he's getting bored and tired of it. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You you quote a, a something he wrote uh, at some later point 
mm-hmm. talking about how he want he, how his ambitions were were going. He says, I admitted freely that when it came to the matter of smiling, I could give anyone else a couple of teeth and win going away. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I might not be much of an actor, they as much as hinted, but as a smiler, I was a knockout. <laughs> you know, and, and he's clearly, you know, he, and maybe some of this is hindsight, but he wants to be an actor. He wants to be, yep. you know, he wants to do he, things that are more than just being a charming personality. That's D'Artagnan. That is, that is where he wanted to uh, be D'Artagnan. And let's, let's say this, uh, Fairbanks, often makes claims of not being much of an actor at all. And many, many, many of his films, his charming personality comes through, but he's not doing anything very nuanced in the way of acting. And when there's a big scene where he has to cry or emote or do something, he often turns away from the camera. So people find it easy, I would argue lazy, to say, ah, he wasn't a great actor, but he was a great personality. Um, He wasn't a great actor and he was a great personality, but there are times when he can be an extraordinarily good actor. And I would uh, point to scenes in the gaucho um, as my example, this film, this one film where he's both a swashbuckler, but also an anti-hero. Um, he, he is acting and um, I was, I was really impressed. So he, he thought to get to be D'Artagnan would would let that would be the performance that he wanted to give. And if you see him as D'Artagnan, that is not the same funny, charming uh, swashbuckler as Zorro. It's not the same guy that we'll see later in Black Pirate. He's he's very French. He's a very it's a, a very specific performance. But if you go back to um, his very first film, The Lamb, and see the first reels where he's playing um, essentially Bertie the Lamb, although they rename the character because they they don't want to pay the author of the new Henrietta uh, any money. Uh, he's giving a very uh, brilliant, funny comic performance as a shy person. And um, uh, so if you look for it, you can find a talented actor in Fairbanks and you can find a very modern actor in Fairbanks. It's just that as the twenties come and his films become grander, he assumes a real theatricality of gesture and um, uh, that naturalism that we see in the teens, we see less of. And if somebody is exposed only to the thief of Baghdad, they're going to think silent films consists of incredibly broad gestures. Uh, you know, he's hungry, he makes a big circle around his stomach. Well, no, here he's doing something very brave and very unexpected. He's trying to make um, the film acting be as dance. He's, he's really trying to do something very specific. And we know he can be naturalistic, and yet he's throwing his arms in the air and he's waving his hand around his stomach and he's scratching his palms. He's, he's making a very bold artistic choice. Um, to the naive eye, it seems like, wow, that was kind of too much. And he never repeats it uh, to that degree. Um, but so judging the, the acting performance of, of Douglas Fairbanks takes looking at a lot of different 
periods in his film career and a lot of different um, performances, you'll find when he's D'Artagnan, he's actually almost imitating Chaplin a few times with the shoulder shrugs and the, oh, well, monsieur. Um, uh, I swear he's imitating uh, Maurice, his friend Maurice Chevalier, uh, who Doug Jr. later imitated so brilliantly in um, The Corsican Brothers. <laughs> Uh, but it was it was more obvious when Junior did it because he had the benefit of sound. And it comes to an end with the Iron Mask, which has a, a definite valedictory quality to it. Oh, absolutely. And he's one of those people who, I mean, he actually did make sound films, but we really have no sense of him as a sound performer his his era is over and uh somewhere around the same time his marriage with mary pickford the the storybook marriage that the whole world watched kind of just comes to an end uh they make a sound film together the taming of the shrew Mm -hmm. not widely seen these days uh but uh Which, which is a lot better than uh it has any right to be given that it's so early in the sound era it's certainly it's, better than Coquette that she won an Oscar oh, for. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As Scott Eyman wrote, is and, was and is witheringly bad. Um, Scott Eyman is such a good writer, and I wish I could turn a phrase <laughs> the way he does. I, I'm just resorting to quoting um, uh, more articulate people than I am often in, in the book. Um, you know, and Everybody loves to quote, um, oh, who wrote that great... Um, uh, 1940 MoMA uh, thing on Fairbanks, Alistair Cook. Alistair Cook is the most quoted guy on Fairbanks because, man, that guy could write. But yes, uh, Coquette was horrible and a huge success and Taming of the Shrew um, less so. But it, 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 it stands up pretty well today. It really does. And his performance was critically lauded at the time. Um, he is very good in it, but you know their day is past. Yeah, I mean, if if he had a shot to go into sound and find a sound persona, he chose not to take it. He 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 married into aristocracy, finally becoming the Uber Wasp, as you said. Yeah, uh, as if she was, she was faux aristocracy, as yeah. if ever there was one. Yeah, she lost her lady title the minute she married him. Uh, and divorced uh, her her prior husband, but still he loved to refer to that she was known as Lady Sylvia thereafter. Right, uh, and and it just uh, I mean one of those people who seems a bit lost once the uh, once the big show is over. I remember yeah. someone saying of Sid Caesar that he spent the rest of his life going, "What happened to my show?" And yeah. I feel, you know, Fairbanks is kind of like that. Harold Lloyd was a bit like that. Uh, to name someone who I think is clearly a Fairbanks uh, follower in many ways. Well, um, Lloyd went on to do other things, uh, um, photography, and, you know, he pursued other passions. Uh, Doug did not. Doug had, uh, he lost the two great, things in his life. He lost his work and he lost the love of his life. And to the extent that it's his fault or her fault, her alcoholism, his infidelity, which came first, um, all of that is explored in the book. 
and the story is more tragic and full of more um, more ways it could have been rescued. Oh, if only, if only, uh, sort of like the um, what was the Cary Grant Deborah Carr movie yeah. where the you know she's hooked up and the yeah, fair to remember and love story I think it was with um, Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer. You know, it's like no, no, just. Tell him you got hit by the cab, for heaven's sakes, woman. But, um, you know, the, all these ways it could have been saved, and it got so close, and it shouldn't have happened in the first place, and it was it was an original misunderstanding. And um, it it really is a classic rise and fall story, and the, the fall part is so heartbreaking because he goes out with a whimper. Um, and he went out way too young. Um, his, I write a very um, specific description of his death, and I'm, I choose to, and I'm entitled to do so because I'm also a physician. I'm an MD. Um, so I know that his death today absolutely wouldn't have happened. You know, his his arrhythmia, it would have shocked him out of it. And after he never would have had the arrhythmia in the first place after his heart attack, because they would have put a stent in, you know, you, you, this guy died at 56 where today he would have lived to be 90. Um, and so he, he cut out way early, heartbreakingly early. And yet, you know what, it would have been better for him to have died 10 years earlier. Yeah. You know, if if he had gone out in 1929 on top, still married to the love of his life, um, it, it would have not had the tragic overtones. On the other hand, those tragic overtones um, are evoked today and make people make artistic hay out of it with films like The Artist, with Jean Dujardin, you know, being inspired by Fairbanks and. Uh, Gene Kelly avoids that fate in Singing in the Rain because he takes on musicals, and so does Jean Dujardin. Um, Doug actually tried a musical, and uh, Joseph Skank cut all the musical numbers out, Uh, except that one with that promising youngster who had a single line in it, uh, Bing Crosby. (laughs) Um, They left that number in. a very, very fortuitous move on their part. It helped them with the reissue of years yeah. later. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he didn't get that happy ending. Yeah, I was thinking it's kind of almost, uh, it's the last bit of his Teddy Roosevelt idolatry. He, too, kind of went out with a whimper after his son was killed in World War One. Exactly. You know, the, the vigorous life when your heart isn't quite in it anymore. Teddy had been... I won't say a warmonger, but Teddy had embraced the idea that you, you know, a manly man does what a man needs to do, and there's a war, you go in and you fight it, and uh, he inculcated that in his children, and uh, he lost Teddy, young Teddy, and um, an aviator in the war, and if you look at the, um, there's a brilliant trilogy on Roosevelt's life that uh, was published over the last 30 years. And, uh, you know, he would go, Teddy would go out to the stable and just sob into the horse's mane uh, because all of that jingoistic um, bully boy, let's go fight the war, it doesn't always end well and in heroes in the parades. It ends with with your son dead on a, a field 
in in France or Germany. And uh, so Teddy had that same, uh, I don't know, moral lesson in life, and and Doug got it too. And um, neither man lived long enough to kind of have that third act and pull themselves out of it. Uh, and that's part of their their tragic yet inspiring narrative even today on both men. I think that's very insightful of you to see the parallel. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, most people don't. You know, most yeah. people don't don't uh, draw the conclusion all the way through. They just take the early uh, Rooseveltian narrative and line Doug up with it. But in fact, it, it lines up at the tail end as well. Now, you're responsible for the new Fairbanks release that's coming out, and it sounds like you've got other things in the restoration pipeline as well. Tell me about those, starting with that first one. It's a half-breed and the good bad man, both directed by Alan Dewan. Um, they'll have audio commentary by Rob Byrne and myself. Rod, Rob did the restorations. Um, I funded them, but also you know, did the Fairbanksian research into... Um, basically how we were getting the material and, and uh, stuff um, and the intertitles. Uh, we've got the intertitles for every triangle except the half-breed and the good bad man. <laughs> we, we, those are the only two for which they don't exist. Um, so we, in the good bad man, we had to work from a reissue and the half-breed, we were working from an original um S.A. Lynch reissue, if that makes sense. The Lynch films, they just popped a different title on it. Otherwise, it was, it was all the same. Um, and then later reissues with different inner titles and different plots. Uh, but we were able to, to reconstruct them. And they're, they're stunning films. Um, the, you know, never seen uh, before, except the few times we've, we've had them screened either on TCM or at uh, sundry film festivals in Italy or, or in San Francisco. So it's, it's going to be a great opportunity for people to see. It's early work, um, but it's charming. And in the case of The Half-Breed, it's a Fairbanks failure. It's not a Fairbanks film at all. It, it doesn't follow his formula. He, he, he isn't his normal character. But man, it's an awfully good film about racism and women, and and uh, you know, the, it's a Bret Hart story through and through. And so, as a film, it stands on its own brilliantly, just not as a Fairbanks vehicle. Um, whoever would think of casting Fairbanks as a sullen uh, half-breed Indian? <laughs> We've done half-breed, good bad man. Um, uh, we did Mister Fix It with the George Eastman House, but they just won't release it. And um, we're doing Double Trouble now. And then the 460 biographs, we are scanning the paper prints at the Library of Congress. So the films that nobody sees that have you know, been totally lost as film will now be uh, available and seen. And we're going to get Donald Sosen to score them. And it's, it's a 20-year project, and we're about three years in. Um, so that's something that you'll want to eventually buzz market to if not yeah. make money on it. But um, uh, my children's inheritance is going into that. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> 
thanks to my guest, Tracy Gossel, author of The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks. And thanks to a previous Nitrateville radio guest, Robert S. Bader, who happens to be her husband and made the connection for us. Ah, those Hollywood power couples. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll have links for the book, Kino's release of The Half-Breed and the Good Bad Man, and other available Fairbanks titles in the show post at nitrateville.com. Please subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating or a review at iTunes. Thanks, 